Jen and I believe that spooky season is more of a frame of mind rather than a singular month. So we're keeping the spook rolling with today's episode. It's going to be a magical adventure into the wild, whimsical, sometimes frightful wonderland of witchy romances. Come on then, romance nerds. Brooms up, hats on, cackles at the ready. It's time to fly. Romance nerds, I'm Jen. And I'm Jackie. We're two librarians from Nopal in upstate New York, and you're listening to Raging Romantics. In this podcast, we like to think a little too deeply about romance books. If you're into theory, history, and raging about Romance Landia, then you should stick around. Please be advised that some of the things we talk about may not be suitable for younger listeners. Content warnings for episodes are available in the show notes. Jen, are you ready? Oh, I'm ready. All right. Let's rage! Thank you very much. I was hoping. <laughs> okay. Do you yeah. have a joke? Yeah. Okay. Of course I have a joke. Do I have right. a joke? <laughs> I just got, I'm picking which one's the worst one on this list. <laughs> That's the problem. I'm so ready. Oh, okay. I think I found, I think I found the worst one, but okay. we, we can do a couple if, okay. if it's not good enough. Okay. Okay. Hey, Jackie. Yes. Who turns the lights off at Halloween? Who? The light switch. <laughs> I have missed your jokes. I feel like it's been forever since we had a Jen joke. (laughs) Oh, that was a good witch laugh, too. I just feel summoned. I feel like I should have flipped the lights on while you said that. It's smelling up from me. Because I'm so excited about this uh, this particular episode. I don't particularly like Thanksgiving, so I'm kind of glad we can take (laughs) a step back and just do a fun Halloween-themed episode again. I know it's not exactly the time of the season, but I'm not a turkey fan. I'm sorry. I don't know if that's sacrilege, but... Give me witches any day. If only we could have like pie-based romances. I just want the pie without the turkey. Yeah, same. I will say actually, I love the sides. If we could just have a sides dinner instead of mashed potatoes, yeah, just give me the mac and cheese. Oh yes, Mm -hmm. the stuffing. Oh my god, so much bread. I know. Yeah. Anyways. Uh, Jen and I recently had the opportunity to speak at the New York Library Association's annual conference, and it's really thanks to you lovely listeners that we had this opportunity and Jen's amazing application All skills. All the things I can do with a keyboard. <laughs> so thank you very much. Um, we recorded the audio, and it is now out for you to go listen to if you would like a peek under the hood of what makes Raging Romantics mm-hmm. tick. So go give that a click. It's the full-length episode right before this. Well, on that note, this is going to be a Jackie episode, so just prepare yourself. Um, and as a heads up, we are going to be talking about witch hunts and why women in the past were accused of being witches. So there's going to be lots of talk of misogyny, clash between the Christian and non-Christian societies back in the day, and the effects of toxic masculinity today. We will also be breaking our no politics rule ever so see, briefly. We'll see. I, I skimmed some of your script, so I don't think we're really breaking it. I think okay. we're just kind of acknowledging that this is yeah. what happened. Yeah. We're going to discuss the outcome of the 2016 election and how it affected Romance Landia. So I'll give you a heads up when we get there, just in case mm-hmm. you really don't want to listen to it. Totally yeah. chill. But it's not anything too terrible. It's yeah. just like you, you can't not acknowledge yeah. Trump won. And yeah. Lots of things change. Yeah. Lots of things change. There's lots of ripples absolutely everywhere, yeah. even in our little tiny corner of Romance Landia. Yeah. Um, but we're going to take it back uh, to the medieval period 
because it's Jackie, obviously. Um, so just kind of lay it out for you because this is going to seem like wildly divested all across the board, but it's not. We're going to follow four main points just so you can follow along at home. First, we'll discuss the social perception of witchcraft. Then we'll take a look at a case study to exemplify how witchcraft was traditionally viewed during this time period, the historical time period. Following that, we will discuss the 2016 election's effect on witches and romance. And finally, we'll bring it all back to the witchy romance books we know and love today. Cool. Any questions? No. All right. Just get started. We're good. To begin, if you've strolled the aisles of any book repository within the last few years and found yourself in the romance section, you've probably seen a plethora of very specific rom-coms hovering happily on the shelves. In the past five years especially, cartoon covers with witchy women in beautiful dresses, riding broomsticks, and or holding cats seems to have multiplied. With punny titles like Witch Please, Not the Witch You Wed, Go Hex Yourself, and Witchful Thinking, witchy rom-coms seem to have become their very own subgenre within the traditional publishing realm. And I'm happy for it. I'm a witchy book lover myself, even if my personal taste tends to run less rom-com and more towards dramatic, like with um, Discovery of Witches, Dark Witch, and Winter Night Trilogy. Now, something that's really interesting to me, looking at these books that I like and looking at the publishing world through a critical lens, not negative critical, but like closely examining critical, like my ninth grade English teacher kept trying to get me to do, there's a very interesting shift that happens in the mid to late 2010s. I would say that in the post 9-11 sphere, when paranormal saw an uptick, these dramatic, over-the-top, world-saving witch books were more popular. We should just call our podcast, It Happened Because of 9-11, because <laughs> it's really always should. that. You we really should. 50 shades. There's been two major uh, foundational t- goalposts, 9-11, 50 shades. Hey, flame in the flower. Yeah, we don't say that in the sacred space. Oh, nominia patris. No, okay. <laughs> What's more interesting to me is that these world-saving witch books weren't necessarily marketed as romance at the time, per se. If I run with the Discovery of Witches example, which we just talked about this whole thing with Book Club that we just had, that book was originally published in 2011 and was marketed as fantasy and urban fantasy, and the Library of Congress subheadings are vampires, witches, alchemy manuscripts, and science and magic fiction. Not a single mention of romance. But underlying that story, it is indeed a romance, as it's a tale of a vampire and a witch who are fated to be together and have to overcome all odds to live their lives. And each book ends with a happily ever after or a happily ever after for now, i.e. the only qualifiers of a romance book. But it wasn't sold as a romance. Now, however, witchy romance books, as I said a few minutes ago, tend to be populated by the rom-com. They might still cover some serious aspects, like social pressure and isolation, mental health, and generational trauma, for instance. But for the most part, they are romantic comedies. And Jen, I've struggled with this. Can you define why we would label these books as rom-coms? Is it the kitschy cover? I'll be honest. I hadn't seen these books as rom-coms until you talked about it. Okay. I think I saw them more as kind of lighter takes. Yeah. So instead of the really serious, yeah, Discovery of Witches or Nora Roberts, the the which, dark there witch are a trilogy. little darker. Yeah. I mean, literally to the name, dark witch. Yeah, yeah. I do think too with the rom coms, it's less about the internal aspects of being a witch, mm. and it's kind of more external plot factors. Yeah, too, which I think is really important. At I least think, the ones I've noticed. Yeah, yeah. I, like you said, light or fair. I think that the comedic aspect of rom com has kind of been taken away from rom-com a little bit and even like more general rom-coms aren't necessarily like laugh out loud although some of them are and you know maybe lighter is the wrong word to use yeah but when i read those it does tend to be more about the 
the boyfriend, the family, the position in, in their world. It's not so much anything internal. Yeah. And that's usually what I see as more lighter or heavy, yeah. personally. Like, lighter in subject matter, more quippy than, like, world-saving mm-hmm. dramatic. Yeah. Um, like in Witch Please, the heroine uses magic to fix technology, and the hero is a baker, and together they have to break a curse, right? Mm-hmm. I hate to use the term light reading because it denotes that these books are somehow less impactful than their literary fiction counterparts. But I do think on some level they are more consumable and, dare I say, more enjoyable. It depends on the person. Yeah, it really does. everything else, yeah. Every book, their reader. Every reader, their book. But even just from that plot, it doesn't sound like there's a lot of internal struggle. And for me, that's usually what comes into play with the darker, not darker, but again, more serious, where there's a lot more internal what is a witch? Yeah. What am I? And a lot of How these. How do I use my power? Like that kind yeah. of questioning. There's a... more questions, I think, in those books. Yeah. A lot of these more recent ones are there like, yes, we accept that we're a witch. And it's yeah. more like, how are we going to fit into society? Mm-hmm. How are we dealing with it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like, Where's how are we going to break this curse? Or how are we going to like get rid of this evil witch? That yeah. sort of thing. Versus like, I can't do this. I'm so conflicted between yeah. my family and what I want and my magic. And I've noticed that being a thing in, in lots of genres, not just oh, yeah. witch, like yeah. anywhere in paranormal. Or I think that's that's a reason too why monster is so popular. Yeah. Is there is this less internal like, am I a monster or not? Yeah. And it's just like, yeah, here I am. Off I go. Beautiful. Perfect. Um, Before we get too far down this rabbit hole, though, I do want to first set the scene with, what else? A history and linguistics lesson. Well, I am shocked. (gasps) (laughs) (laughs) Because the shift that happened in publishing in the last couple of years, it's fascinating to look at in terms of how witchcraft is viewed through a sociopolitical and cultural lens. So, Jen, for the linguistic lesson, where do you think the word witch first originated? I want to say somewhere in a Bible or like a religious text. No. Well, kind of. A little bit. Okay. (laughs) Kind of yes, kind of no. So generally speaking, the word witch is taken from Old English from at least the 7th century CE, current era. Just as a reminder, um, Old English was the language of choice in the British Isles post-Roman evacuation in the 4th and 5th centuries, up through the height of the High Medieval Period in approximately 1150 CE, when it was largely replaced by Middle English. Old English is the result of the linguistic interactions between Anglo, German Saxon, and Latin based languages. The word witch is thought to decline from Wicca, W I C C E, meaning female magician, sorceress, which in later use meant especially a woman supposed to have dealings with the devil or evil spirits and to be able by their cooperation to perform supernatural acts. It is the nominative fem- feminine declension of the Old English word Wicca with an A, which meant sorcerer, wizard, man who practices witchcraft or magic, which in turn is taken from the verb wikian, meaning to practice witchcraft. And again, we have the word being used to describe the word, which is just so fun. (laughs) Now, where things get even more interesting, we're not completely able to trace back wikian any further with definite meaning, mostly because, as the Oxford English Dictionary, the OED, points out, which, wicca with an e, or even wikian, are all entangled in phonetic or semantic difficulties meaning that we can't possibly have a translation that is free of specific cultural definitions or biases. Some scholars suggest that the verb is connected with Old English wigle, meaning divination, and wig or wih, meaning idol. In turn, these could come from Proto-Germanic wikias, meaning necromancer, i.e. one who wakes the dead, from the Proto-Indo-European wegyo, from the Proto-Indo-European root, meaning weg, which meant to be strong or lively. I know we just went really far back, but basically it came from a masculine word that meant to be strong, right? Mm -hmm. Well, that's cool. Yeah. 
until it wasn't <laughs> because if That's we move fair. forward in time <laughs> we start to see witchcraft being singled out as a woman's practice because witch becomes a strongly binary gendered word that is used specifically to denote female and even more so evil female persons for instance in the laws of alfred circa 890 ce witchcraft was specifically singled out as a woman's craft whose practitioners were not to be quote suffered to live amongst the west saxons Thanks to the Saxons and Old English crew, we see further linguistic crossover in what it meant to be a witch according to Anglican society. We have associations between witch and evil spirits with, wor- with the word sinleke, or with poisons with the word libleke. Furthermore, necromancy or necromantia, and specifically with demonum in vocatio, or the invocation of demons, is closely drawn with wiccacraft, witchcraft. Please excuse my Old English accent. My Germanics are never as good as my Latinate. Now, as language and specifically as English evolved, we are easily able to see the close association and influence of culture on language and vice versa. For instance, the word wicked first appears in 12th century in Middle English, and I think that having explained Wikian to you already, it is easy to see the crossover between the understanding of witch and the understanding of wicked, right? Sure. Okay, cool. To stand on my linguistic soapbox for a moment, language shapes how we perceive and understand things in our culture. By closely conflating things like wicked or necromancy or poison or demons, these taboo bad subjects in their original languages and even today with the word witch, our cultural understanding and perception of witch is shifted. This might be difficult to do or understand without getting rid of a modern feminist 21st century raised in a Christian America mindset, but in general, to understand the badness of things like raising the dead or calling up denizens of hell and to associate that badness with an individual who has been labeled as which means that then our association of which is automatically tied to ideals of Christian evil. I was wondering about that because it does. I'm, I'm sure there's witches in every culture of the world. Oh, yeah. But it does seem like, like that's why I thought, oh, Bible, because yeah. we know the Bible does not like suffer yeah. witches. And we're, we're yeah. going to talk about that yeah. in a minute here. Um, and yeah, d- that's just as a for further clarification. We are specifically going to talk about European, English, and American witches mm-hmm. in this episode. But there is a vast culture of yeah, witches. Yeah, they're all over the place. Yes, African witchcraft is fascinating to mm-hmm. look at if you ever want to dive into that. It's really interesting. But to get back to Europe. Outside of Christianity, witches or persons who practice witchcraft weren't necessarily even called witches. Of course, it's hard to know what they were called as the bulk of written Western history exists for this time period because of the church, capital C on church, and so only is told from or about the church's point of view. But if we read between the lines, we see that those labeled as witches were those who existed outside of and resisted the influence of the Christian doctrine of Europe and England at the time. We see these, predominantly women, existing as peasant or folk healers. They don't necessarily believe in the Christian God or are those who practice midwifery or herbal medicine. In Old English, they practiced what was called charms, which quite literally meant to chant or cast a magic spell and was taken from the Latin word cantere, meaning to sing. Indeed, a lot of witchy or folk practices, even to this day, are closely related to spoken invocations and songs and music during rituals. So with something like this, was this something that anybody was doing or was it still specific people who kind of self-identified as, oh, hey, I'm this person who is a folk healer and I will do these things? A little bit of both. Mm -hmm. It came to be really anybody, but it started a little more specifically as these as these people who were practicing these like midwifery and that sort of stuff and we'll, we'll talk about that too don't worry thinking this way it's easy to see then how in the early 15th century we start to see disney's favorite representation of a witch as the old ugly and crabbed or malignant woman officially represented 
because we all know bad people are old and ugly, right? And that is because of the belief that the physical act of practicing evil or wicked deeds must physically deform or mark the doer somehow. So witches, because of their cultural connotations with wicked things or with anti-Christian sentiments and beliefs, must naturally have been physically repugnant. This is where we get the image of a cackling old woman with a hooked nose, mm-hmm. humpback, and hairy wart. I imagine, too, that's a good selling point for Christianity. Yes. To be like, hey, don't you want to be young and pretty forever? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Think of representations of the Virgin Mary yeah. versus representations of a witch. That's a good point because she's always super young. Beautiful, and I know it's also like, skin. yeah, she was supposed to be like 14 or 15 when she yeah. gave birth, but I've never seen an old Virgin Mary. Right. Right. The she's, oldest one you see is when Jesus, uh, Jesus is crucified. Yeah. She's always kind of still a child yeah. in a way. She's always in, beautiful. Like, in depictions I've seen of her. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Versus the witch, which we all know isn't necessarily a true representation. It was just what the powers that be wanted us to see. And I'm about to stand on my medievalist soapbox. So buckle up, Jen. Oh, boy. All right. So it goes so much deeper than that even. The powers that were during this shifting time period from roughly 900 CE through 1500 CE were striving to establish Christian, specifically Catholic, dominance and European dominance. And the conversion of the masses to a religion that was overwhelmingly controlled by a central patriarchal body made it easy thereby to control the masses. We really see this with the creation of the infamous 15th century Malleus Maleficarum, a document that gives explicit instructions on how to identify, examine, torture, and accuse those individuals labeled as witches. Malleus Maleficarum, you might know as the hammer of witches. This is also where written history truly starts to denote the gender binary with witches and women's inferiority, most likely as a result of Renaissance and early modern sentiments and the sociopolitical shift at this time that saw growing centers of patriarchy throughout European society. Previously, the medieval paradigm, though still overwhelmingly a patriarchal-based feudal system, again, especially in Europe and England, did revere femininity more through things like assumption of power, queenhood, and the dichotomy between church and state in the reverence of figures such as the Holy Mother. However, with the shift to a newer cultural paradigm during the Renaissance, we see a large rise of centralized nations presided over by a single male ruler with the divine right to rule in systems like monarchies. Through this shift, we see the relationship between the divine right, the church, and the male presence of the church growing ever closer, while femininity is excluded and beginning to be persecuted. We can see a similar analogy in the arguments made, trigger warning, pro-slavery of African and indigenous peoples during the 16th and later centuries. These peoples were deemed inferior by their sex, race, color, and heritage, and and the pro-argument side reigned against these persons, quote, natural intellect, as a result of these contributing factors. And so their subjugation was thus justified by the community and culture at large because of all of this. Femininity, likewise, was persecuted because in this growing Christian Renaissance mindset, it was in opposition to the masculinity and to everything the masculine centers of power represented. Women bled, so they were inferior. Eve ate the apple, so women were the reason for our suffering, and so on and so on and so on. And how was it easiest to persecute women? Label them as anti-Christian, label them as witches, and you have free reign to torture and execute them at will, according to the legal documents. And that leads us right up to the rise of witch hunts during the 15th century up through the 18th century, especially during the period of Protestant England. And to look at what these actual witch hunts were like, we're going to talk briefly about one of the most infamous and deadly witch hunts in history. Jen, I'm setting you up for this. I'm sorry. But do you have any guesses as to what this could be? The Spanish Inquisition? No, actually. It's not the Salem Witch Trial. It's not no, it's enough. not Salem. Is it the one where they were, like, in Africa in, like, 2013? They were No. It did take place in the 1600s. 
I'd be really surprised if you knew about this, to be honest. Oh, okay. Well, then I don't know. Okay. I don't know that much <laughs> stuff. I, yeah, that's why I was like, yeah, Spanish yeah. Inquisition. Yeah. So the Spanish Inquisition was actually um, mm-hmm. less so of a witch hunt because it was more against men. I know, but still, yeah. they were like, they Nobody expects fun. the Spanish Inquisition. And obviously, it wasn't like Salem because I'm sure yeah. it's not going to be big enough. I can't. I don't know. I'm going to, okay. I'll still let you know if I did know this. Okay. Just my brain okay. is bad. It's all good. Like I said, I'd be surprised because this is one of the Jackie things that I hyperfixated on. Mm-hmm. Um, so no, it wasn't Salem because right. while the 1692 trials and executions in Salem, Massachusetts was like deadly as, died. yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, only 19 people were executed by hanging and one by pressing. So yeah, nobody got burnt at the stake. No. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't over hundreds of years. The pressing sounds like it sucks. Yeah. Poor Giles. Yeah. I looked, uh, I looked at some of the, they don't have pictures, but you know, the, the carving, what is yeah. the stupid stamp thing called? Linographs? Yeah, I was looking at linographs of that, of just, like, the poor guy just, like, bulging. Yeah, yeah it's not, <laughs> not pleasant. Yeah. Um, Glad I did not live in Salem, then. Yeah, so that sucked. But in Europe, meanwhile, conservative estimates for people who are killed for being witches are somewhere between thirty-five and 50,000. Wow. Conservatively. Mm-hmm. And that's just for the years officially between what most consider the first witch hunt in Valais, Switzerland, in 1428, and the last official witch hunt in Poland at the... I'm going to say this wrong. Dura cow, dura chow, witch trial. Oh, wait. So that many people were killed between 20 years? No, between Ruff. 1428 and 1783. Oh, oh, oh. I read that number yeah. wrong. Okay. So, like, you're like, oh, 35, 50,000. That's conservatively, too. Yeah, okay. We have no idea, really. Mm-hmm. This I mean, is, it's still a lot yeah. of people, but, like, that's a long period. Of- yeah. Yeah. So, what was it a couple... Was it, like, continuous witch hunts? Did mm-hmm. they just kind of, like... Was there a day in the spring where they're like, all right, it's witch hunting season? It was just continuous. It was just constantly rolling. And we're going to talk about in like two seconds why. Cool. For as deadly as the microcosm of Salem appears to those learning American history in grade school, there's another witch hunt in England that's just as deadly and much more broadly reaching than Salem ever was. You could even say that this earlier series of hunts and trials was a direct predecessor and influencer of the later Salem witch trials. With that in mind, let's talk briefly on the Pendle and more light more widely, Lancashire Witch Trials. Often referred to as England-Salem, the Lancashire Witch Trials in 1612 in Lancashire, England, counts for 2% of England's entire history of witch hunts. That may not seem like a big number, but for over 300 years, witches were officially persecuted, and to have an entire 2% take place within a handful of months is historically astonishing. Lancashire, just if you're looking at a map of England, is a county to the northwest of England, north of Manchester, and west of Leeds on the coast. At this time in English history, witchcraft was an illegal practice according to Elizabeth I's 1562 law in the form of an act against conjurations, enchantments, and witchcrafts. This law demanded the death penalty, but only where harm had been caused, and lesser offenses were punishable by a term of imprisonment. The act provided... The act provided that anyone who should, quote, use, practice, or exercise any witchcraft, enchantment, charm, or sorcery, whereby any person shall happen to be killed or destroyed, I love that, destroyed, um, was guilty of a felony without benefit of a clergy and was to be put to death immediately. Elizabeth's successor, James I, who assumed the throne in 1603, was also incredibly anti-witch. Perhaps he was most well-known for the translation of the Bible that came out under his reign, the King James Version, in which there's the infamous translation of Exodus 22:18, stating, Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. Other previous translations had the word sorcerer, poisoner, and that sort of stuff instead, hearkening right back to our earlier discussion of the origin of the word witch. Mm. James was also... Kind of paranoid. 
He was convinced even long before his reign that he was being plotted against by Scottish witches, a la mm. Macbeth, um, most likely thanks to his lifelong study of Protestant theology and the theology of witchcraft and a very bad sea crossing during which his ship almost went down. By 1610, he had also enacted a law that imposed death penalty in cases where it was proven that harm had been caused through the use of magic or corpses had been exhumed for magical purposes. He even penned his own magnum opus on witches and the occult called Demonology, or Demonology instructing his readers to condemn and persecute both supporters and practitioners of witchcraft. Isn't this guy busy enough? He's supposed to be running a country. There's like tales of him just popping up at all these witch hunts being like, wow, I'm here. Fun. I'm so, here. With guys like this who are really crazy anti-witch, mm. today would they be kind of like an incel? Is it that kind of energy? Is it just like one of those weird... <sighs> kind like, of. It's also somebody like religious fervor, mm, I guess. Okay. Um, just somebody who's really into what they do and what they believe and they have the power and influence to influence a lot of other people which sounds very familiar mm. <laughs> yeah this sets the scene for the lancashire witch trial as by early 1612 every justice of the peace in lancashire was ordered to complete a list of recusants in their area these are those who refuse to attend the english church and to take communion a criminal offense at the time so at this time like you're only allowed to be christian right Yes, specifically okay. Protestant. So were there people in the area that got kind of swept up in it just because they happened to be Jewish or I don't know if there was like an atheist thing mm -hmm. at the time. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very much so. Okay. That is you're hitting the nail on the oh. head with well, why people were <laughs> accused of witchcraft. Look at me in my history brain. Good job. Good Connecting job. Connecting the dots. Because <laughs> remember, this time period in English history was all about dismantling the Catholic Church and imposing Protestant and thereby British monarchical rule across all of England's citizens, including colonies and outlying states. On England's shores, this meant that the Catholic structures were physically torn down, such as during the dissolution of the monasteries under Henry VIII between 1536 and 1541. During Elizabeth and later James's reigns, Protestantism was made the country's official religion, and under the Religious Settlement Act in 1559, Catholics were fined for not going to a Protestant church, and Puritans, a growing stricter set sect of protestantism were fined and absolved of their roles in the protestant church you know the romans had it right just tax everybody and let people do whatever they want this yeah. sounds like a lot of work yeah there's a Jeez, lot of paperwork guys. involved also henry could have his wives yeah and let's not say anything about non-protestant or catholic faith because i think it's already glaringly obvious what, what that would have been like so by the Church of England demanding the local justices take note of everyone taking communion, they were, in effect, noting those who weren't ascribing to Protestantism and thereby could be seen as active dissenters of the British crown. How big were these communities at the time? Like, was it easy to kind of be on the outskirts and not be noticed? Is that also kind of where the witch thing comes of, like, the midwife on the corner of town who's kind of out in the reeds and is not, you know, friendly? Okay. Mm -hmm. I'm nodding for those. Obviously, you can't okay. hear me nod, but cool. I'm nodding. Because <laughs> mm -hmm. this created an atmosphere in the surrounding area of blame and, mm -hmm. much like we would see in Salem, a community of mistrust and an easy way mm -hmm. to get rid of neighbors or community oh. members you had a vendetta against. Ooh, okay. Some would even suggest that the witch hunts of Lancashire and really any witch hunt developed because of economical envy against the profitability yeah. of those who practice traditional and folk medicine and enchantments. I mean, I'm sure this James guy absolutely believed what he was saying, but let's, let's not miss the obvious money, money, money. Yeah. The usefulness of this too, of just being like, Hey Jackie, I want your stuff. You're a yeah. witch now. Because those who weren't going to church weren't paying church taxes. Oh, I didn't even think of that aspect. Mm -hmm. So you're like little leeches on the side of the 
So the little old midwife who yeah. lives out in the reeds isn't paying the church taxes. She's not, quote, taking communion. Mm-hmm. So she's not paying taxes to the British crown. This is a really sleek, sneaky way of getting rid of people you do not like and who you mm-hmm. want their stuff. Wow. Mm-hmm. And on that note. I love that. That's just like we've never really changed as people. No. <laughs> we all suck. It's all cyclical, guys. The Lancashire witch trials started genuinely as a rivalry between two controlling families, the Demdikes and the Chattoxes both headed by older, poverty-stricken widows, Elizabeth Southerns, Aww. a.k.a. Old Demdike, and Anne Whittle, Mother Chaddix. That's sad. They couldn't just be friends. Yeah, no, they were butting heads. <sighs> Old Demdike had been known as a witch for most of her life. Indeed, throughout England, it was still accepted as part of village life in the 16th century that there were village healers who practiced magic and dealt in herbs and medicine. And again, I'm still thinking, like, if these are small communities, it's yeah. not like what is medicine like at this point it's probably not it's like herbs. Today. yeah this is exactly what medicine is. it's not like doctors are going around no. to nearby to like to come and help your boils or something remember modern medicine wasn't yeah. really invo- invented until yet. the 1800s so it's not even so much that like the medical industry is getting in here to take patients no it's not, not even yet. that no okay it really is just like you guys suck yeah okay exactly Um, In March 1612, following the list of recusants, the local justice investigated a complaint made of witchcraft in Pendle, an area historically known for its anti-Protestant sentiments. Mm. Allison Device, Demdike's daughter, got into a feud with a peddler named John Law. Allison, either traveling or begging on the road to Trodden Forest, passed John Law and asked him for some metal pins. He refused, and Allison cursed him. Supposedly. After this, John Law suffered a stroke for which he blamed Allison. There was a lot more that went into is it. Is this but one of those things, too, where it's the story is written by the victor, so who knows what the actual thing the is? The story was told by someone who was tortured. Uh, oh, and you can't trust that stuff. No, exactly. Okay. Because remember, Malleus Maleficarum and yeah. demonology made it perfectly mm-hmm. okay, to whatever like means that. necessary. Just because with all of this of like, oh, she just comes up and asks for metal pins out of nowhere. Yeah. Like, that sounds weird There's to no me. due process of law. There's okay. nobody sitting in an interview room going, my client needs some water so and a So we break have to right take now. this with a grain of salt. Yeah. Like, okay. Yeah. Pressing wasn't just an execution method. Right. When this incident was brought before the local justice, Allison confessed that she had told the devil to hurt John Law and further accused her grandmother, Old Demdike, and other members of the Chaddix family of witchcraft. It is interesting that Allison accused her own grandmother, but like I said, who's to say she wasn't tortured until she gave up this information? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I am a wimp. I'm a baby. I cry when I get my eyebrows waxed. I would probably say anything, throw anybody under the bus. So to bring it back to the Spanish Inquisition, part of the big torture method there was they would literally burn the soles of victims' Mm -hmm. feet. So imagine having fire held to the bottom of your feet, Mm -hmm. nails torn out, teeth torn out, trigger warning, constant rape as a method of torture. Like Mm -hmm. it wasn't, it was not a good time. Yeah. Who's to say what you wouldn't say? Mm -hmm. I would have said anything. Yeah, exactly. Just to get it to stop. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Either way, after hearing further evidence of witchcraft, the judge detained Allison and Allison's mother, Elizabeth Device, as well as old Demdike. From the Chaddix family, old Chaddix was further detained, mother Chaddix, as was her daughter, Anne. They were tried and committed for witchcraft and sent to the Lancaster Gale at Lancaster Castle to await trial. Say that 10 times fast. This might have been the end of it, except Elizabeth Device organized a meeting at Malkin Tower, home of the Demdikes, on Good Friday, April 10th, 1612. For what? We don't know exactly. Possibly to discuss Allison and Old Demdike's conviction, circle the family wagons. Regardless, to feed the party, James Device stole a neighbor's sheep. Oof. Obviously illegal. I'm 
wondering, did anybody else like these families? Were they like the annoying people in the community? I think they were like community leaders, but they oh, were like so they weren't butting heads. Okay. But then it's interesting because they were also like headed by poverty stricken mm-hmm. widows who practice witchcraft. It's yeah. just an interesting dynamic. Between that and now this kid's stealing stuff, I yeah. am wondering if Not a smart move. other people saw, again, an, as opportunity. an opportunity here. Power vacuum, like yeah. with the mafia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's exactly. That's probably what happened. Anyways, on April 27th, an inquiry was held again before the justice and another magistrate to determine the purpose of the meeting at Malkin Tower, who had attended and what had happened there. As a result, nobody's surprised, eight more people were accused of witchcraft and committed for trial, including Allison's brother, James the Sheep Stealer. How bad was it to steal a sheep back then? It was bad. It was like on the level of what? Um, it was a punishable offense. Okay. It wasn't punishable by death unless you were ki- stealing the king's sheep, so okay. like poaching the king's land. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was like imprisonment, mm-hmm. maiming, that sort of stuff. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So it is a big deal to, to steal the sheep. There were still a lot of medieval laws in place during this time period. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the meeting attendees who was accused, Janet Preston, officially lived across the border in the county of Yorkshire. So she was sent for a trial at the York Assizes. The other witches were sent to Lancaster Gale to join the accused already in prison there. Assizes, as a brief aside, were quarterly courts that met to discuss more serious matters than the weekly justices could decide on. So like all the witchcraft mm-hmm. accusees were sent there. Janet Preston, the witch from Yorkshire, was tried and found guilty of plotting murder and was hanged at the Knavesmere in York on July 29, 1612. Fun fact, the Knavesmere was right near the apartment I lived in when I lived in New York. And if you ever want a ghost story, just let me know because I have a so horrific one related to it. So I'm confused. Who, who was she supposed to have almost murdered? It's another whole story, but it's it's kind of closely related to what happened with Demdike mm-hmm. and um, Chaddix, but it's kind of not. And so then it's she's just kind of was like, just there. It's kind of like a ripple effect now. Yeah. yeah. So like we got the initial accusation and now people are kind of like And they're accusing each tales. other under yeah. like duress or because okay. they see an opportunity. Maybe they're being promised things. Who knows? So it's this, this poor kid was probably, or Carol was probably just like kind of wrapped up in yeah. it. Yeah, very mm-hmm. much so. Um, in the Lancashire Assizes, nine of the accused, including Allison, Elizabeth, and James Device, were found guilty during the two-day trial and hanged at the Gallows Hill in Lancaster on August 20th. Old Demdike died awaiting trial. One person was found not guilty, and another was acquitted of her supposed crimes. So with somebody who gets declared not guilty, because I feel like I... Anytime we talk about witch trials, it's always, oh, they're guilty in two days, they're, they're going to die, whatever. What do you have to do to be proven not guilty? From what I remember when I was reading, and links are all in the show notes, so mm-hmm. you guys can yell at me if I'm wrong. Um, but from what I remember, it was because the evidence wasn't sufficient. Wow. <laughs> yeah. It just it seems like the evidence already real flimsy. Yeah. So to look at somebody and be like, oh, we don't have enough to prove you're a witch. Like, oof. It was kind of like there were competing bits of evidence that Mm -hmm. like one proved one thing and another proved another thing and somebody said this, but then somebody else said that. So it was just kind of like, we can't say you're guilty, so you're not guilty. I don't know if that makes it better or worse. Because on one hand, I can kind of see, okay, you guys get swept up in this. But then it also feels like you're you're being real picky and choosy about who dies and who doesn't. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. It's just, it's the whims of those in power. Just like dumb luck. Yeah. Like, jeez. Yeah, it's fun. Something that really stood out to me too during this trial, which obviously hopefully wouldn't stand in today's Western legal system, was the fact that a nine-year-old girl was brought to stand witness against her own mother. 
She was so small, in fact, that she had to be stood on top of a table to give her testimony. Hmm. It's just like just a heart wrenching scene right there. Yeah. And that was the Lancashire witch trials, one of many witch hunts that arose during this period in European and specifically English history, and one which definitely lent some of its notoriety yeah. to the American colonies and the later Salem witch trials. I feel like there was a lot of that story that applied to what I know yeah. about Salem, and it, yeah. it kind of feels like it was kind of like a roadmap towards that. Yeah, just mm. community mistrust. Yeah. Yeah. What, nice to know it was back then. <laughs> it's forever. <laughs> what really stood out to me about the Lancashire witch trials is the demonstration that while magic, association with the devil, and witchcraft were used against the accused, a lot of the hunts and trials, like Jen and I were just saying, were used to demonstrate economic feuds or community feuds between individuals. Mm. We, of course, see this in other witch trials too, not just the economics aspect, but the notoriety of individuals like in Salem or singling out those who are viewed as others, whether for their skin color, heritage, physical defects, family name, or so many other reasons. I'm not going to debate or speculate on the existence of magic and witches in society, whether historical or present, because magic means something different to every person, and the assignation of Christian ideals to distinctly pagan belief systems and practices has shifted our understanding of what it means to be a witch even further. TLDR, witchcraft, as demonstrated by this example, was used as a sociological pressure to accuse minority individuals or those who ascribe to different belief systems and practices. It wasn't about magic or even necessarily the practice of a religion. It was about culture and community. Hmm. So let's move forward 400 years and talk about romance books. (laughs) I spoke briefly in the beginning of the episode about the rise of paranormal romance and Jen elaborated a little bit about the wake of 9-11 and you guys... You've heard us say this a billion, jillion times about this phenomenon, but for any new listeners, listeners, Jen, could you please rehash our argument on this topic? 9-11 happened and changed everything, basically. What a shock. Yeah. <laughs> everything. Yeah, so we saw a lot of shifts, not only in our society, but also in our publishing and our book choices. Some of us went full paranormal, where we wanted yeah. these big dramatic heroes who could take on any kind of challenge, even the like massive things. And then some people went the complete opposite and loved Amish. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Go listen to our Paranormal and Amish episodes yes. for more info mm-hmm. on that. They are linked in the show notes. They're like mirror images of each other. <laughs> they really are. <laughs> the ways it's split. Um, okay, so we have, okay, here's a complete devolution. We have the monster escalator. Yeah. We have the, um, what is the one that's- Anabaptist. Anabaptist elevator. elevator. Mm-hmm. What is the, um, the spectrum between them? I mean, they're in the same building, but I feel like they're separated by a trap door. <laughs> there we go the trap door of uh 9-11 oh god that sounds terrible the recession when everything got yanked out from under you there we go the trap door from, from the bottom again the trap door of the aughts i don't know <laughs> anyways moving on so what happened then between 2001 and now in 2022 when jen and i are recording this that brought about a new rise of witchy stories First and foremost, I have to say I never realized there was an actual correlation between the events we're about to talk about in romance books until last year when Jen and I had the chance to talk with the romance chicks. Um, I don't think the event is recorded anywhere, so sadly I can't link it, but during this we were discussing our favorite paranormal and witchy romance reads. And one of the group members members spoke up and said, yes, that there has been a recent resurgence of witchy romance books because of the 2016 election cycle. For me, this was kind of a complete record scratch of a realization. Honestly, I have not been able to stop thinking about it since. So when Jen said I could talk about witches, I knew this was the rabbit hole I was going to go down. That was not a rabbit hole earlier, Jen. That was just my brain. Okay. So. 
<laughs> so now we're going the rabbit hole. Yeah. yeah. Oh boy. Because actually, the 1612 witch hunt and the effects it had on the community at large are directly reminiscent of the 2016 presidential election cycle. Now, Jen and I, as we've said, we try to steer clear of politics because, quite frankly, we don't enjoy discussing this with a wide audience. And beyond that, we're a library podcast. As such, we seek to represent as many different views as we can and not make anyone feel excluded because of their beliefs or affiliations, except Nazis. Yeah. With that being said, we are going to get just a touch political um we will not be taking sides or talking about wider things but we are going to be talking about how the romance community reacted to the election of former president donald trump if you don't want to listen to this or if this topic is triggering for you then please feel free to either end the episode here we understand or fast forward to the last five minutes or so so we're gonna be talking about it for the rest of the Kind of. No, remember we still have two points if you follow my outline. Oh, good. No, sorry. When you were just like, oh, fast forward to the last five minutes of the podcast. Oh, yeah. So I, I'm going to put the actual like timestamps when you can fast forward to okay. in the show notes. So that was just hyperbole, Jen. Oh, yeah, you scared me when sorry. you said that. No, I was like, no. please don't get me fired. <laughs> no. Please, not for Donald Trump. No. The 2016 U.S. presidential election had a profound effect on many people, writers included. A lot of authors started coming out saying that they felt deep despair, anxiety, depression, and heartbreak. Compound that with the 2020 COVID outbreak, Black Lives Matter, and hashtag MeToo movements, and general growing political dissidents across the world, not to mention everything else that's going on this flaming dumpster fire. I don't think it's a surprise to anyone that, for writers, their answer to fix the world and their method of coping with a lot of things came in the form of writing. I remember we read that really interesting BuzzFeed article where Sarah McLean admitted, yeah, she had to completely throw her book out after the election because she realized the hero was the jerk and she did not want to do that anymore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which I still would like to read that manuscript, but I don't think it'll ever happen. No, I'm sure she got rid of it. And Day yeah. with the du- Day for the Duchess was yes. probably way better than what she did originally. So good, yeah. so good. A 2019 book riot report noted that during this period, from 2016 to 2019, there was a specific rise of feminist dystopia, a la Handmaid's Tale, especially in YA. That's young adult. Think the Gracier, the Red Queen series, Dread Nation, and Wilder Girls. Likewise, Dark Academia, a microcosm genre that looks at how people behave in specific social situations, has also been steadily on the rise with books like If We Were Villains, Babel, Atlas Six, and Legendborn. Fantasy has also gained increased popularity thanks to intersectionality between the book publishing and TV worlds with shows like Game of Thrones, which yes, I know does predate 2016, but think of how it like became to be such a cultural zeitgeist post-2016, right? Just in general. And there have been more recent ones like Grishaverse, House of the Dragon, and Rings of Power. Also, because of a growing representation of feminist themes outside of the YA realm, think titles like The Women's War, Once and Future Witches, Cersei, and the Crescent City series. These are escapist genres, but beyond that, they are also genres through which writers and readers can explore areas of cultural commentary and critique while placing the critique in a world that is, a lot of the time, vastly divested from our own contemporary setting. This is exactly what we saw post-2001 with the rise of paranormal. The world depicted in the book was vaguely the same, yet different different enough that we felt comfortable both escaping our world and exploring things that were going on with new boundaries. We had fantastical creatures like vampires and werewolves and fae and elves that, though they had been in the literary world for centuries, became closely entangled with sociopolitical commentary about power structures and feminism and politics. So this is just a different facet of what we did in the early 2000s. Yeah, exactly. Because that, dear listener, is where the rom-com, and in particular the witchy rom-com, rose in the wake of Donald Trump. Before I go off on this direction, Jen, do you have any interjections? Please do not get me fired. No. Okay. (laughs) Big breath here. (sighs) 
As we saw from our earlier discussion, witchcraft has been used as a method of persecution for centuries. That should have been obvious really to any modern listener, even before I went off on my medieval linguistic Lancashire tangent. Um, if we step back from the rom-coms momentarily, we can look briefly at the term treatment of witches and the politicization of witch hunts during the past six years. Again, I'm not going to debate the possibility of real magic or witchcraft or anything like that because to those who practice and believe, it means something different to every individual. That's the gloriousness of witchcraft. It is distinctly anti-central practice and anti-establishment. But I digress. The 2016 to 2020 political years were full of targeted attacks towards the gender binary and increasingly the non-binary. And we still see these attacks today, particularly against women's and non-white, non-cis, non-male rights so challenged to the point where the term witch hunt, something that has historically, specifically, been used against feminine presenting persons and those who challenge the patriarchal Christian-based society, has even now been, dare I say, appropriated by that same patriarchal Christian-based power structure. The term witch hunt was first co-opted from a feminist power struggle to male politics with the 1953 debut of Arthur J. Miller's The Crucible, an allegory for the Red Scare instigated by Senator Joseph McCarthy. McCarthyism operated much like historic witch trials, stoking paranoia through gossip and eschewing hard evidence. False convictions, whether for allegiance with the Soviet Union or the devil, encouraged new accusations driven by escalating fear and opportunism. The term was then further used during the Watergate hearings in 1978 against Nixon by male journalists who sought to denigrate the Senate proceedings. Since then, the term witch hunt has come to be specifically associated with the contemporary political scenario, applying itself to the ruthless way political opponents attack each other and are, quote, persecuted in the media. In opposition to this, we see a direct correlation in the rise of people who identify as witches, in esotericism, and in the renewed exploration of non-Western or non-traditional religions, even to the point where there were witches enacting certain spells during the 2020 election cycle. In particular, there was an effort launched by a group of witches from Salem, Massachusetts during the lead-up to the 2018 midterm with the hashtag WitchTheVote. This became a cross-media initiative and, quote, collective intersectional effort to direct magic towards electing candidates who the witch-identifying people supported. With this effort, intersectional feminist politics worked alongside magic and creative media production to engage in political activism that included advocacy around issues such as affordable housing, reproductive rights, and Black Lives Matter. This quickly grew beyond Salem, and as October and November 2020 rolled around, witches on social media everywhere began using the hashtag to join forces and take back their power. Now, talking about intersectionality, we also see these same beliefs and actions echoed outside of the political realm directly in Romancelandia. I haven't been able to find specifically any articles or people hypothesizing academically about it, but to anyone in Romancelandia, there's an obvious observable correlation here. Lisa K. Adams directly talks about the influence of the 2016 election that it had on her series, The Bromance Book Club, which seeks to fight against toxic masculinity with wholesome, uplifting stories of male relationships and men actively seeking to better understand things in general. <laughs> Lissa calls it cathartic to write these sorts of stories in our atmosphere, and it's cathartic to read them. Likewise, still in the more general rom-com sphere with Red, White, and Royal Blue, Casey McQuiston talks about the moment they heard the election results. That was their aha moment, and Red, White, and Royal Blue was their answer. It's a political rom-com about the son of the first female Latina American president and the grandson of the Queen of England having a rivals to lovers fake dating romance that takes the world by queer storm. In a way, these rom-com answers serve in the same way that the dystopian dark academia and fantasy books did and still do, 
They provide us with escapist worlds and plots that the readers really, possibly, would love to see happen in actuality. Except not the apocalypse. That wouldn't be fun. You know what, too? I was just talking about this today with my coworker, Thomas. Shout out to Thomas, hey, Thomas. who is probably listening. He mentioned that he had read this really interesting study that there is a huge difference between like the millennial and the Gen Z humor. Yeah. And millennial, <laughs> yeah. just thinking back to, okay, millennials are supposed to be very dark in their humor nihilistic um i made a joke immediately after about wanting to die so i was like yeah absolutely and i feel like that kind of attitude and that grittiness and that darkness kind of relates to that early form of paranormal that kind of came around yeah, that that's first time true. meanwhile gen z is supposed to be more tinged with hopefulness right and they're supposed to be more creative and they're not as kind of brutal as some of the some as we are and oh, i feel like true. i'm kind of seeing that play out in the things that are coming out yeah like the the books you just described there's a lot more hopefulness i think and a lot more willingness to try to train to try to change things than i think i saw in paranormal 20 years ago where we were just like yep this yeah. is it let's so exist. i just it's not exactly a, a direct parallel but i do think it's kind of interesting just how it's kind of shifted and formed and mm. obviously these authors are not gen z but i do kind of see their influence well, no casey mccliston is a millennial so oh well yeah exactly yeah, they're yeah. all too old yeah but i do kind of see just yeah <laughs> to be gen z i know <laughs> we're not but, old but i am kind of seeing a difference in like you said the things that are providing us with escapism and mm-hmm. catharticism and how it's mm-hmm. doing that and yeah. no, I mean, like, again, I love Christine Fan. I love Cheryl McKenyon. I love all those early ones. But I don't see these kind of, like, change hopeful things. That's true. Mm-hmm. That's so just popped into my head while you were talking. It. Brilliant. So thank you, Thomas. Genius. you helped that uh, train of thought. Okay. So now let's finally talk about witchy rom-coms. They are the pure intersectionality, in my opinion, between the rise and repopularization of witchcraft and esotericism with the answer rom-coms have provided since the 2016 election. And to clarify, right now I'm talking purely about non-fantasy, contemporary, traditionally published romance. Because in indie romance, witchy rom-coms have always just kind of been brewing in the background. And I'm not saying that witchy rom-coms suddenly became this whole new genre in 2016. No, there were books that technically did fit this overall genre mm-hmm. heading, crossing back into the rise of paranormal. Of course, there were. Them. Yeah, yeah. For instance, Angie Fox had her Demon Slayer series, which was mostly marketed as paranormal romance, or this weird sort of cozy mystery romance thing that happened with books like Ashlyn's Ch- Ashlyn Chase's Strange Neighbors or Vicki Lewis Thompson's Babes and Brooms. I like that title. But again, these were more along the lines of indie and less of what we think of as rom-com today with the romance playing second fiddle to the paranormal plotline. If we move forward to the time period I am now talking about, we need to remember that publishing at a minimum for traditional publishing takes about two years. Let's say a year for writing the book, which is average for an author who's already represented by an agent, then another year for editing, designing, marketing, and finally publishing at a minimum. For new authors who aren't already agented, you can probably add another year, if not two, to that count because now you have to query, find an agent, go out on submission, get a publisher before you can even start with editing with like publisher editing. So with that in mind, if we look at the atmosphere in Romancelandia and traditional publishing surrounding the 2016 election, let's add two years onto that to account for writing and publishing. I'm going to say that the mother of contemporary witchy rom-coms, author of Practical Magic Alice Hoffman, leads the charge with her publication of Rules of Magic in October 2017, a prequel to the 1996 book Practical Magic, and a giant surprise to the witchy romance community because we were not expecting this book, but since we've been blessed since then, we've been blessed with three more Practical Magic books. 
And this isn't some overwhelming call to arms at this point. During this period, I would say it's kind of more of a quiet revolution, and people don't start jumping on the publishing train until maybe 2020. Queen Nora Roberts then comes out with her surprise apocalyptic witch romance, Year One, in December 2017. And I think publishers and authors start getting on the bandwagon here. If Nora can do it, why can't they? We see a few more serious witchy books like Paula Braxton's Little Shop of Found Things and Hester Fox, The Witch of Willow Hall. And of course, in my mind, the pinnacle of witchy books, Circe by Madeline Miller, which came out in 2018. Actually, all of these books came out in 2018. In 2020, perhaps as a result of the 2018 mid-election cycle or as a long result of the 2016 election, we start to see the first true inklings of witchy rom-com with books like Blacksmith Mm -hmm. Queen, which is more fantasy, but it still features the fun blend of comedy and romance and magic in traditional publishing. And then in 2021, it all really just blows up. Cackle by Rachel Harrison sits somewhere in the middle of this journey. It's a witchy comedy about, like, dark comedy, about a woman leaving a relationship for upstate New York and gets embroiled in a witch's life, but there's no romance. It came out in October 2021, and if you threw in a love interest, I would totally include it in the, include it in the subgenre. In reality, though, I think Anna Guiri kicks off the trend with her novel of a witch who runs a computer shop in Witch Please, which I talked about back at the beginning of the episode, in September of 2021. On the heels of that is Aaron Sterling with The X-Hex, a story pretty obviously inspired by Bewitched, because the cover says it all, with a second chance rivals to lovers about a witch who cursed her ex, but now they have to work together to save the small town and the Harvest Festival. In quick succession, we have Payback's a Witch, A Letter to Three Witches, Not the Witch You Wed, League of Gentlemen Witches, Boss Witch, Go Heck Yourself, Hex Yourself, Small Town Big Magic, and the list goes on and on with even more slated to come out in 2023. As I said at the beginning, these are all very aesthetic covers. They're illustrated, cartoon, uh, they range kind of that blue, purple, green spectrum, and they just look good together on a shelf. So to put everything all together, why do we think that witchy rom-coms have become so popular? Jen, with everything I've laid out, what is your take? So I feel like one thing you've missed out of all of this is okay. kind of a question of, of why witches are so appealing Mm. Because when I think of witches now, I feel really powerful. Mm. I feel like they are con- in control of their own destiny for the most part. They're very independent. I mean, witches, yes, witches have coven, like covens, but, you know, they, they usually have their own house, their own thing. They have all this ability that I feel like I sometimes lack. Mm-hmm. So I think when I want to read a witch story, that's something that I'm, I feel like I'm missing in my own life. Mm-hmm. So especially if we go back to the 2016 election without me getting fired i think kind of that sense of helplessness yeah was something that women were kind of looking to not ignore but to kind of find some comfort reading Mm. and be like you know what i want to be a witch and like actually take care of this myself i think that's the difference between this trend and the one that we saw after Mm 9-11 we kept looking for heroes Mm, to save us point yeah and i feel like as a witch i'm gonna actually be the rescuer, the yeah. hero, the the person who changes this myself. With the rom-com aspect to it, I think at the same time I want all of this, I still want to laugh. Yeah. I still kind of want to just It's chill almost out. like cozy too. Yeah, I guess it's cozy. I feel like we need to have a discussion about cozy yeah. at some point because I, I don't know if I keep I agree having with this that. with patrons and I have no idea but what it I actually do, means. Like so I think like you got the aesthetic of the witch and you still kind of want to live in a world where it's acceptable to be a witch mm-hmm. you, like you don't have these these internal questions about it it's just like all right here's this problem here's this guy i'm gonna take 
here's this whatever i'm gonna go and get it yeah and yeah i'm like i'm so tired i just want to laugh <laughs> sometimes yeah i just want to like like laugh and i think there's lots of kind of fun mishaps you can have with like a magical realism rom-com kind of a thing yeah so i kind of think why that's why those two things have come together so much because a lot of those serious witches i just feel like they're like they end up being dark yeah in a way they end up being gritty in a way that i'm not necessarily looking for all the time so i'm just like i want my witch i want to laugh i want to go to bed and some spice so we're all good Mm -hmm. yeah yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I really think it comes down to these books are sociopolitical commentary under the guise of rom-com. And they feature, like you said, magical realism, dash of fantasy, and generally some good steam. It's marketable. It's popular. And traditional publishing has really laid on this trend of late. And my only quibble, well, I really do have two quibbles with this trend. <laughs> so just, yeah. They tend to present a very generalized and similar practice of magic. The ones I've read often don't represent a magic system beyond a very like new agey Western practice, you know, the type that media typically represents in shows like Sabrina. In reality, as I've said this entire episode, magic is insanely personal and everyone practices differently. Wicca, with an A, is one of the largest practices here in the United States and Europe, but there exist other beliefs and practices at the same time. I would love to see other systems like hoodoo, Appalachian folk conjure, even generalized generalized cultural practices like Slavic or Celtic or indigenous be represented in these books. For the record, I haven't I have seen these represented outside of rom-coms. Secondly, I know it's rom-com, but I feel like sometimes they don't treat things with enough seriousness. <laughs> You know, we have rom-coms like Lissa K. Adams' Romance Book Club that does deal with heavy topics like toxic masculinity, sexual harassment and assault, PTSD, and immigration issues while still maintaining a status as a rom-com. I think that these witchy rom-coms glazing over issues of witchcraft, specifically the history and persecution of witchcraft that I outlined above, is far from circumspect. Again, if they do touch on it, it's kind of along the lines of, oh, my ancestor was a survivor of Salem or some such, but again... There were witch hunts throughout history beyond Salem. Rom-coms can be serious while still maintaining their humor they're known for. I would like to see more of these witchy rom-coms talking about bigger, badder issues that exist for contemporary witches in the world today. And now that I say that, I feel like I just said like the opposite of what you were saying, that mm-hmm. these witchy rom-coms are known for. Yeah. <sighs> I don't know. So maybe you just need to clarify or classify this differently in your head. Because okay. I know for me, like I said, I did not necessarily put like rom-com witches like in a category mm-hmm. in my head. Like it's just like a witch book's a witch book. Okay. And like different, they're different things to at different times at different plots. Okay. I don't know. For me personally, I didn't necessarily need the like separation. Okay. If that makes sense. Yeah. No, mm-hmm. that makes sense. I understand. There's yeah. like, there's a spectrum of witch. Exactly. And it's just, it depends on where you land on the spectrum and other books do things better than other books and it yeah. just depends what you like. I would still would like to see this end of the spectrum represent wider mm-hmm. cultural practices, though. Okay. That's that, see, I'm like, I don't care at all. But it's just like, wiggly. I want to just wag my wand and have a problem <laughs> fixed. I don't care. I want more. Yeah. <laughs> and, Jen, for the final question of today, do you think which rom-coms are here to stay? Oh, no. Nothing is. No? Everything's going to change. Okay. Well, like we we've had so many discussions about oh, this. Yeah. Everything comes and goes, and there's trends and there's not, yeah. and 
five years from now who knows what will happen after the next fifth plague oh yeah you know like <laughs> yeah the triple demic that we're yeah. having yeah i think it's kind of a brief flare in the publishing world they're mm-hmm. popular but there's other rom-com takes like regency that are still going to yeah. outweigh the witchy ones I think too with the witch ones it, because it was so serious for so long i like i think people were kind of ready too to be like yeah. i want to look at the funny side of this because yeah, there true. are ridiculous things you could do with magic yeah yeah, I think witches are here to stay, you know, for that the long term. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but I think they might be about to shift back into the world of, like, the more serious. We'll see. Like, um, Nora Roberts is kind of typified with this, and mm. she's still writing in some of these, yeah. like, plot lines. Mm-hmm. Um, but who knows what it's going to look like with the next election cycle. <laughs> I personally think the other types of romances are next in the pipeline, like monsters. I've seen so much monster. So I do much think monster. monsters are a big staying. Alien is still mm-hmm. going strong. Again, everybody wants to get off this planet. Yeah. It was <laughs> like 60 degrees today in November. I just want to get off before the world's on fire. Seriously. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. On that lovely note, Jen, what are we doing next month? It's a great question. I don't know yet. <laughs> Okay. I, I mean, I've had requests a couple times for a holiday themed, but I just don't know how to stretch that into an hour. So as always, if you guys have suggestions or questions or things you would like me and Jackie to explore, please tell us because I have no ideas right now. <laughs> I have one, but that's going to be for the end of the month. So Jen's on the hook next. Yeah, I know. Everybody. I don't know what I'm going to do. We'll see. I got okay. idea. I do. I do have ideas. Okay. okay. I just... Have when to- I look at my list, I'm just like, Ugh. what next? Well, I don't know. Yeah. So we'll see. It'll be a surprise episode unless somebody emails me to be like, hey, John, you haven't explained this enough. Remember, bro? <laughs> so so let me know, surprised. please. Okay. I will dedicate that episode to you. <laughs> well, thank you so much for bearing with me on this one, Jen, and to you lovely listeners. I know that it was a little bit all over the place, but witches are such a broad topic that I had a lot I wanted to talk about. If you're interested in learning more, make sure to check out the show notes, which are below the episode on whatever device you're listening to, where I've listed all of my sources, as well as some recommendations I have for learning about witches and our world and the sociopolitical infrastructure. As a final piece of witchy advice, always throw spilled salt over your left shoulder, keep rosemary by your garden gate, plant lavender for luck, and fall in love whenever you can. Jen, what do we always say? Rage on! Bye, guys. That anyone who should, quote, use, practice, or exercise. I did that my tongue. Or exercise. <laughs> Don't hurt yourself doing this. Maybe you're the witch. Your mouth's trying to keep you from spilling the secrets. Mm-hmm.